A graphic novel, a TV show Well, it's not TV, it's HBO And will this thing succeed? And by how much, man? And some might cheer and some might scoff Because it's Damon Lindelof But either way, we're off to watch some Watchmen Watchmen Talking Watchmen Analyzing Watchmen And maybe arguing over Watchmen Who watches the Watchmen? We watch Watchmen. You watch Watchmen. We all watch Watchmen. He watch Watchmen when, when, when she watches Watchmen. I don't know what I'm saying. I'm Alex. I'm Justin. And I watch are- Watchmen from all time. For, like, I'm watching Watchmen at all times. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. from in the time is flat in that way. Simultaneously. By the way, I appreciate the fact that you're not wearing pants right now. Uh, that really completes the picture of you experiencing everything in every time period. That's great. Yeah. Well, you got to be free. You can't mm-hmm. be constrained by some tight jean. Mm, I get what you're saying. Tight jean smart is what yeah. you're getting at. Uh huh. Yeah, great. Let's get into it. We're going to be talking about an almost religious awe, the latest episode of Watchmen. This is a huge one. Everyone feels like a huge one. Everyone feels like a bigger one than the one before. But without exactly, and it kind of does, but without exactly hitting that, I did it 35 minutes ago, Adrian Veidt laying out the plan moment. Th- that's the feeling that I got from this episode. Did you get the same sort of thing? Yeah, it, it did a great job of just like feeding us a couple little details before the big like uh, reveal at the end. And in such a way where you felt that sort of like d- almost dread of like, wait, what? What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? And then all of a sudden, boom, you got it. And then the imagery at the end was just so sort of horrifying but exciting. And it was a great mix of emotions throughout the whole episode. Oh and I got to say, I mean, I'm not one to be like, wow, we called it. But we did get this one. <laughs> we pretty d- nailed it. We nailed yeah, it. we did. Well, uh, to be fair, okay, let's, let's jump to the big spoiler. And then we'll talk about it more when we get around to it in the plot. Uh, but the big spoiler, don't listen if you haven't watched the episode, of course. But it turns out that Cal Abar is Dr. Manhattan, which, yes, giving ourselves credit, also, we guessed everybody was Dr. Manhattan, basically. Well, no, I, no, I, no I, we guessed a lot, but we guessed the, our primary guesses, I think, were um, Toph. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Topher. Kid. Topher, sorry. Uh, Cal. Mm-hmm. And um, a slight like Ozymandias, maybe that was more earlier on. Yeah, uh, I think it became pretty clear that Adrian Veidt was just Adrian Veidt at a certain point. You could still like have five percent of. Well, maybe he's Doctor Manhattan as well. Maybe Phillips is Doctor Manhattan, but it certainly felt like somebody was. And the there's so many clues if you go back and look. So many different clues that his identity was in fact Dr. Manhattan that I think a lot of people put together and to the production's credit, what I think they do so well is it doesn't matter if you put it together. There's not a feeling of, 
Ugh, I guess that it was Cal. It's still very exciting. You don't know how it's going to come together. You don't know what's going to happen next. And it really changes not just the entire show, but in particular makes you go back and look at absolutely everything that Angela Abar did throughout the entire show to figure out her actions make a lot more sense after this episode, I think. Yeah. Yeah, to have her be uh, to have so much more information than we thought she had, she felt like she was sort of at the mercy of all these things happening around her and these revelations. When in fact, she had a huge trump card, literally the trump card, uh, yes. waiting uh, the whole time was was a great reveal. It gives her so much more, uh, maybe not control, but so much more uh, something to play here, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was great. And I want to say on the reveal, like unlike other shows uh, where a reveal like this is like, oh, and then you're sort of like, okay, that's it. This was such a great reveal that only gets us more excited about what comes mm-hmm. next. And the, the real was, reveal was not at all a letdown, uh, which is just like a show like Westworld, I feel like, plays mm-hmm. so much on the rug pull reveals. And then they feel a little hollow when this had the opposite effect. It felt energizing to the story to sort of have all the pieces on the board and have it just like rocketing toward whatever this is going to happen in these next two episodes. Yeah, I don't want to spend too much time slamming Westworld or anything like that, but I it's funny you mention it because and we've talked about this on the podcast before, but Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's score is so good on this show. It's so good. But there's certain points when it gets to the tinkly piano that it does remind me of Westworld a bit. And the fact that we had this very, it didn't completely get into the tinkly piano, but was still very one note at a time cover of life on Mars as we have, the Dr. Manhattan reveal, it did feel very Westworld to me. So I think that's a very apt comparison, particularly in this case. Yeah. And I mean, they're on the same network. They both uh, have W's. They mm-hmm. both are big into W's. Like, I yep. think it's right there. They're yeah. right next to each other on HBO. Yeah, it's uh, it's like 50% Westworld, 50% Arliss, I would say. Yeah, Arliss, very close. Uh, a lot of Arliss is the Dr. Manhattan of the show, Arliss. Yes. Um, and go ahead, prove me wrong. <laughs> All I'm saying is we have two episodes left. If Robert Wool doesn't show up, I'm going to be very annoyed. Great. Everyone just turned off this podcast with your, you're pulling the wool over our eyes. <laughs> uh, by the way, tune in to our other podcast where we recap our list called The Wool Over Our Eyes. Uh, let's get into the episode and then we'll get back to the whole cow reveal because there's a lot more to say about it as we get to it. Um, I did want to mention before we get into anything, uh, as we seem to always do, talk about the title of the episode first. The title is An Almost Religious Awe. This is the second episode in a row, I believe, that has come directly from Watchmen, the graphic novel, the comic book itself, particularly this is from chapter four. It's a quote from Dr. Manhattan as he zips through different parts of his life uh, and tells his life story out completely out of order, of course, where he says the Viet Cong are expected to surrender within the week. Many have given themselves up already. Often they ask to surrender to me personally, their terror of me balanced by an almost religious awe. And I think that happens very specifically in the first scene, and we'll get to that after we do a quick recap of what's happened so far, but I also think that's how we, the viewers, feel at the end when the blue glow lights up Angela's face, where particularly if you know who Dr. Manhattan is, and you should, even if you haven't (laughs) read the comic at this point, 
I, I certainly felt that. You feel like, oh, God is here now. Yeah. And uh-oh, that's bad and good, and uh, something's about to, big is about to happen. Mm-hmm. I also thought, I really like the way they, they use the titles in this show. They use them as sort of just like, almost like putting a pin in a section of culture that they're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this specifically is like, well, we're going to talk about Dr. Manhattan and Vietnam and how it relates to these characters that we've laid out in front of you. And I think that's true of a lot of the titles. They put us in the world of where the characters are headwise and what they're going to be dealing with as the episode goes on. Yeah. And remind me, uh, I've made a note for the end, but remind me in case I forget, I do want to talk about the next week's episode title because I think they did without giving away any spoilers or necessarily knowing anything, a very neat trick with that, but we'll come back to that in a moment. Let's do the recap for the what's happened so far, because there's a lot of different things that you need to know, particularly the main character, Angela Abar, who you mentioned before. She is a cop in Tulsa, or at least we thought she was just a simple cop in Tulsa. Uh, no. Obviously, a lot more going on with her at this point, but she operates in a system where all of the cops wear masks. This is because of an event called the White Knight that happened back in 2016, where a bunch of racists called the Seventh Cavalry shot up the family. Family of cops shot up cops themselves. There were very few survivors. More people signed up after that. Uh, but Angela ended up pretending to not be a cop while still being a cop in mask, in guise, as Sister Knight was the character she took on. A couple of other characters mm. you could probably know about this episode. Other cops include Red Scare, who's dressed in a red face mask and has a Russian accent. There's Pirate Jenny, who seems to be sort of almost like Mad Max-style pirate more than anything. Uh, And they're kind of two minor characters at this point who are bouncing around, uh, but they're all part of this police force. Now, the inciting incident in the first episode was the death of their chief of police, Judd Crawford. And we've learned a lot of other information about Judd Crawford, particularly he seems to have ties in some way to the 7th Cavalry. He was working with Senator Keene Jr., who is a rising young senator in Washington who has aspirations of being president. Or perhaps not, as we find out this episode. Uh, (laughs) President of the universe. Yes, something like that. Space president. Ooh, that's coming. Blue blue president. You're joking about that, but that is very near in our actual real future in the the world. Yeah. It's just going to happen. So they were working together on opposite sides. Senator Keene managing the 7th Cavalry, Judd Crawford managing the cops for a goal that we haven't exactly known what it is. We find out or think we find out what that goal is this particular episode, but Judd ended up being murdered. He was hung from a tree using mesmerization technology created by the group Cyclops that seems to have morphed eventually into the Seventh Cavalry down the road. Uh, They are all a racist group. They're all the Ku Klux Klan. It's all kind of the same thing. Uh, Will Reeves was the original superhero, the original mass vigilante called Hooded Justice. He stole some of this mesmerization technology and seems to have used it throughout the years, but specifically used it to murder Judd Crawford and then meet his grandmother, uh, granddaughter, excuse me, Angela, for unknown reasons. Additionally, Will, though it doesn't totally play into this episode, uh, was secretly gay. He was also secretly black under the hood, hooded justice. Nobody knew who he actually was. And because of his anger towards everything in the world, he ended up driving away 
his wife, June, uh, who left with their son very early on, the son being Angela's father. Uh, We catch up with both of them a little bit this episode, so hang on to that information a bit. Uh, We also know that Angela grew up in Vietnam. We also know that she met Cal there, at least she says she met Cal there, uh, and he had an accident uh, and ended up losing all of his memory. He had complete memory loss. Uh, Totally normal. Happens all the time. Very chill. It happened to me once, I think. I don't yeah. remember. No, unsure. Yeah. Uh, what else do you need to know? There's also a character called Lori Blake. She used to be a superhero called uh, Mass Vigilante. Excuse me. I keep using those interchangeably, even though they're different things, uh, but called the Silk Spectre. Back in the time of Watchmen, the comic book, she eventually took on the guise of the comedian based on her father, the comedian, uh, and then eventually gave all that up to join the FBI and track down masks. She's also ended up in Tulsa. She's taken over the police department. She's definitely sparred with Angela Abar quite a bit uh, and has tried to find out what's going on with Judd Crawford's murder, among other mysteries going on in Tulsa. Another cop you should probably know about who doesn't well, show up. Well, before you up, move on, she, uh, yeah. she was in a uh, relationship with Dr. Manhattan. Mm. Yes, that uh, is important, is important to know as well. Uh, she also is working with a guy named Agent Petey, who's sort of a uh, sad sack is the wrong word, probably nerdy agent. A medium sack. Getting, He's a regular a sack. sack. He's not a happy sack. He's just sack. a sack. Yeah. You never hear the term happy sack. <laughs> Only sad sack. Hacky sack is very close. That's true. Man, that yes. guy's a real hacky sack. Mm-hmm. Kick him around. Kick him around. Knock him that on sort your knees. Of, it, it sort of works for Petey. Yeah, He's it a does a little sack. bit. He's a real hacky sack, that dude. Uh, also, there's another character called Looking Glass, who is a cop named Wade. He had worked with the 7th Cavalry not exactly against his will, but not something he had meant to do, uh, and turned Angela Abar in to the police. Uh, he Last time we saw him, a bunch of 7th Cavalry dudes were entering his house with guns. We catch up with that briefly this episode. Also, as soon as he turned in Angela to the police, she downed a bunch of pills, which are called Nostalgia, that all contained her grandfather, Will's memories. Last episode, we went on a huge memory trip through his entire history. She found that out, almost died, finally came back of it. And when she came back, she was in the care of Lady True, who is a trillionaire based in the Tulsa area. She is very mysterious, also came from Vietnam, uh, though that she was born there, unlike Angela, who just grew up there. Uh, and Lady True is tied in some way to Adrian Vite. We'll get back to Adrian Vite in a second. She's also building a structure called the Millennium Clock that she says is there to just tell time, but also be her legacy and the eighth wonder of the world. We don't know a whole lot about it yet, uh, though we certainly can have some suspicions, I think, after this episode. Definitely, especially when you're saying it's going to be an eighth wonder of the world and you're like, it's just a clock. Like, what's so fucking good about this clock that people are going to be like, yo, I got to see that clock. I mean, other than the Great Library of Alexandria, what about the other wonders? They were like a fucking statue and a fucking wall. Who yeah, cares? but haven't we? Those are back when like that was new technology, like a wall. Mm-hmm. It was like, whoa, that's crazy. They built that big wall. Well, but I now will say, if you're like, if you're like, I'm building a clock, people are like, cool. Technology is weird though in the world of Watchmen. So maybe it's like a clock slash cell phone, like it's a digital clock, and people will be like, oh. that's nuts. Yeah, I guess that's true, like a clock that has an alarm, Mm -hmm. like an alarm clock. Oh, the world's largest alarm clock. Baller. Yeah, how do you reach that snooze? Probably with one of those floating ship things, right? That's why you need a god to come down and press the ultimate (laughs) snooze button. 
uh, the plan is coming together. Last thing you should know about, as we mentioned, is Adrian Vite. His code name is Ozymandias. He caused a huge squid explosion back in 1985-1986 that killed three million people. Uh, we don't know exactly what happened to him, but now we know he is on Europa, one of the moons of Jupiter. He is seemingly trapped there by a number of clones called Phillips and Crookshanks. They all seem to serve him, but due to his uh, attempted escape, one of the Phillips named the Game Warden captured him, and when we catch up with him now, he is being put on trial. We'll get back to that in a second as well. So lots of information there laid out. I'm sure we'll get to more as we go through the episode, Mm -hmm. but shall we jump into it with the documentary... All about Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's I a doc this. doc. It's a doc doc. And I loved it. <laughs> I loved it too. Uh, this is very cool, particularly if you haven't read the comic book and you don't know any information about Dr. Manhattan, getting the line drawn on drawn under it that this is who Dr. Manhattan is. This is how he was created. We've hinted at it before, but just plain telling us he won the Vietnam War for the United States. We get to see him in all of his big blue glory, except for his face, which is interesting uh, yeah. and clearly purposeful. Makes sense. Makes sense why <laughs> later when we realize Yes. That. Uh, And then it pulls out and we get to see it's actually in a comic book version of Dr. Manhattan that is inside a video store that we later find out is in Vietnam. Uh, And man, there are so many things in here, so many little Easter eggs. I ended up writing down a bunch of them, but then I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Justin, to kind of walk us through the rest. Uh, But I do want to mention these. Uh, So we see a young Angela, and young Angela is played by Faith Herman, who people might recognize from This Is Us. I knew her as uh, she's one of the young kids in Shazam, so you might have seen her there. Uh, But she's flipping through this video thing, and you get to see a bunch of like very weird movies, including Tusk and Trunky and Monsters from Outer Space, which to me seemed like a very clear squid reference. Uh, But the three in particular that I think are the most important to look at, uh, one of them is Silk Swingers of Suburbia. Silk Swingers of Suburbia is a trashy B-movie that was made about and with the first Silk Spectre that they talk about in some of the back matter in Watchmen, the comic book. And the deal with that movie was they were trying to film a serious superhero biopic of Silk Spectre. It ended up not working. They kept reshooting it and changing it. They brought in another actress, and it ended up being total trash and a failure at the box office. Uh, Another one, which we've seen somebody reading the book version earlier on, I I don't remember exactly who it was uh, in the series, is Fog Fog Dancing. Uh, Fog Dancing is a book by Max Shea. Max Shea is the main writer behind the Squid Attack Back in Watchmen, he disappeared, and we get to see on a TV that I believe when Laurie and uh, Dan are almost having sex in the comic book, uh, that they mention he's missing. He wrote Fog Dancing in another book, and it was adapted for films twice. So this is one of those. Uh, and then, oh, they're also they're by King Taylor Productions, which is the actual production company that they mentioned the thing. The last one, which is probably the most important one, is Agile is completely obsessed with this movie called Sister Night, The Nun with the Motherfucking Gun. Uh, and that's clearly where she took her personality from. This is total theory time, very far-fetched, but the only reference I could find, it, it says Capstone Films presents Sister Night. 
And there's no capstone films, as far as I know, in Watchmen. Uh, but there is a quote from Adrian Veidt, I believe, in the last issue, where he says, My servant's death from exposure after drunkenly opening my vivarium provides its silent capstone. Mm. So I do wonder if the implication is there is that at the end of the day, at the end of the show, in some way, we're just going to be left with Sister Knight, that that's going to be the final image of the show. I mean, I, I like that. I, it makes sense. She is the capstone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's cool. Uh, a couple other things. Well, I wanted to say, uh, in that documentary about um, about Dr. Manhattan, they talk about him being immortal. They use the word immortal a bunch of times, mm-hmm. which I thought was a little weird because nobody knows if he's immortal. Right. Right? So yeah. the fact that they're pressing that makes me think he might uh, die by the end of this series. Right. Well, isn't that what they say? That's what they say the plan is, at least. So I think, if anything, this is uh, providing... Uh, this is the same thing we've been getting with Dr. Manhattan all along. The people give information about it, but they don't really know. It's not really accurate. And we've heard things like Dr. Manhattan is a person here on earth. He's masquerading as a person and been told, no, that information is not true. Of course, it seems to actually be true in some form. Uh, we've been told he time travels you no, know, and was hooded justice. Both of those things probably not true. And now we're told that he's immortal, but we've also been told that part of the Seventh Cavalry's plan is to kill him. So, yeah, yeah, there's all these contradictions there. And I think, to your point, nobody actually knows anything. Yeah. Uh, Exciting uh, to see what's going to happen. But jumping in, so all those Easter eggs were great. Uh, We get Living in America playing on the the radio in in Vietnam as uh, as. Angela's walking around. Um, I love all the Dr. Manhattan puppets and sort mm-hmm. of the uh, feels like he's being controlled by different people. And that's going to be something that is what this series is about. Yeah. Uh, using his him and his uh, his legend. Yeah. And I believe this is uh, I couldn't quite catch the poster. It said Saigon 87, either VV or VVN day, which um, yeah. I assume. Uh, oh, my gosh. What would that stand for? Um, uh, victory in Vietnam. Yeah, victory in Vietnam. Uh, day. Uh, also, she passes by a burgers and borscht restaurant, uh, yes. which they eat in later on, which is something for the comic. Uh, that happened after America and Russia settled their differences. Uh, and so you get a burgers and borscht restaurant. And so I think this <coughs> is setting not just that particular collaboration, but also that Vietnam is pretty squarely a state in the United States now. It's the 51st state. As a matter of fact, they uh, reference it. Um, And what I look uh, another on all these references, it feels like this series is doing a great job of slowly becoming uh, closer to the source material Mm -hmm. as the, as the, each episode has gone on. It's like sort of the excitement of the fact that they're doing the Watchmen show um, is it's getting bigger and closer to that sort of original text. And I think that's funny because I, most projects that come out of a comic book or any other IP start with a source material and then go out. And this is sort of doing the opposite, which I think is really interesting and really smart. Yeah, I agree. It's, I'm forgetting which show this was. Uh, there was somebody, 
Oh, man, uh, I'll remember like halfway through the podcast. But uh, they talked about dealing with source material and having to come around and earn it. Oh, I think it was Legion, actually, where they were talking about ah. they didn't feel like they could bring in Professor Xavier immediately. They needed to prove that they were their own show and could do their own thing before they brought in these legacy characters, because otherwise yeah. it would become all about them. And I think... That's exactly what Watchmen is doing as well. But the smart thing they're doing at the same time is for all its weirdness, for all that's out there and strange and squid rains and all of these other things, they're giving you the information when you need to get the information in the simplest, most direct way possible. Like if you had never read the comic book, I think you could still understand who Dr. Manhattan is and why it is important that he shows up at the end of the episode. Yeah, he's been appropriately built up, whether you know the comic or not, throughout the course of the series. Um, and this whole scene, it feels, it's sort of shot oddly. It's shot like a memory um, mm-hmm. in that, like, uh, Angela's parents, who are sort of standing by themselves and behaving oddly, uh, we find out as it's going on that this is her memory and it's still being influenced by the nostalgia. Yeah, there were two <laughs> things that I thought were kind of fascinating about that. Uh because the whole thing finds Angela jumbling up her own memories with uh, her grandfather's memories, with Will Reeves' memories. Um, so we yeah. get to see the Tulsa Massacre timeline. We get to see throughout episode six, throughout Will Reeves' life, and then also Angela's memories as well as what's happening now. Uh, and yes, to your point, absolutely, it's very dreamlike. It's very weird. Uh, the two things that I took away from that, one... Maybe this is a little too far afield, but I felt just how Will's origin riffs in a certain way on Superman through the black American experience. I think Angela's origin kind of riffs on Batman a little bit is what I was getting Uh, just in terms of seeing her parents die in front of her uh, swearing vengeance. We don't get to see her training up as a cop or anything like that, uh, but we certainly see her getting to see the man, getting to get vengeance in that way and build up her skills and ultimately take on this identity of Sister Knight as she travels back to Tulsa. Again, it's not exact, but I think it sort of veers off there. The other thing that I felt for this episode is similar to how last episode was all about inherited trauma through the African-American experience. This, to me, very much felt like they were jumbling up Angela's memories because that's what happens when you are an expat. That's what happens when you're an army brat. That's what happens when you're an American in a foreign land, et cetera, et cetera, that all of these memories, all of these influences jumble up to eventually become the Angela that we know when we meet her in the series. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and how, like, lives like this uh, have ripple on each other. Like, we get to see all the connections Will's memories have to her memories. And they sort of, uh, to your point, like, riff on each other and and speak to each other as the generations, the, the trauma from the past is sort of influencing the future or the present in ways that no one really understands or realizes. Yeah. Uh, we, we get to see, and we get to see it in just an imagery, uh, just the imagery of it. Yeah. And the fascinating thing about that is that it works a couple of different ways because we get to see the, 
say, shots of Dr. Manhattan's liber, quote unquote, liberation of Vietnam. And that's interspersed with the Tulsa massacre. And you get to see that there are two sides to all of these stories that similar to how later on Keen Jr. is like, Hey, it's a hard time for a white man in America. We're going to bring America back. We're going (laughs) to, you know, make it great again. I'm glad they did it. I'm sorry. I'm glad they didn't say that, but that's clearly like they came up to the edge of that. And that's clearly what they were implying there. Uh, Well, given that we saw Fred Trump in last episode, I don't know if we know, we don't know if Donald Trump even exists in this uh, timeline, which is exciting. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but yeah, the, they're saying that there's like there's two sides to all of these stories. That one person's liberation is another person's massacre, and that's what we get with the puppeteer in the scene. That yes, I think you're right that people are controlling Doctor Manhattan, but there's also you have a man from Vietnam who finds his life, finds his world is out of control because of the super being, and he is looking for a way of essentially taking vengeance on him as well. But he perpetuates the cycle by. He doesn't mean to kill Angela's parents necessarily, but he kills them and Angela's life ends up, the way he influences Angela's life ends up ending his and changing hers in a very palpable way. And like ending his, cha- changing hers to the fat, to the point where she ends up on the path connecting to Dr. Manhattan mm-hmm. and being uh, married to him. Yes. Uh, so like, yeah, again, the sort of, Twisty, turny uh, ripple effect. Uh, yeah. Play. So, ladies, uh, look, if you want to meet a husband, you blow up your parents. That's what we're saying on this podcast. Wow, nice. That's the sociopath's way of understanding <laughs> events. Check out my dating app. Uh, <laughs> uh, the sociopath. Yeah. <laughs> uh, your way to <laughs> a yeah. so, uh, pretending wanna, to love. So we've talked a lot about this first scene. I think it's when... The bomb blows up. It kills her parents. That's the point that she flashes back to the present day, right? And she's yes. in Lady True's care. So she wakes up. Um, uh, Lady True is there. Um, we get. Uh, she's being treated. There's a tube uh, going into her arm that then leads out of the room, which I thought was super interesting. We get a lot about how sort of the mechanics of nostalgia here mm-hmm. um, and how Angela's been waking up and going back out and Lady True has been re-explaining all this stuff. We get a little sort of uh, another mini doc about um, how <clears throat> how nostalgia works, um, how memories are clogging their neural pathways, and they needed to be flushed. Yeah, um, which I thought well, this is interesting and not super like necessary for the plot, but just yeah. like fun. Yeah, that was it was a interesting sequence to me. Unless it pays off next episode or the episode afterwards, it more felt like it was answering audience questions of we can't just throw this in here and be like, okay, we're giving you a treatment, Angela here. You're giving a treatment or maybe they needed to explain it, but they didn't want lady true to be like, and here's my exposition speech and instead show it. Similar to how we've talked about, they, they riffed on this on the official Watchmen podcast, uh, calling it a non exposition exposition that it's, it is, it is telling you, but it's much closer to showing you than just straight up having a character tell you, I think. Yeah, and and yeah, I don't know how, to your point, I don't know how it will come into play unless it has to do with Will. Um, because mm-hmm. we don't... Um, Angela's told by Lady True that um, 
that it's connected to a host who is sort of taking the memories away from her. They're being flushed back into this person. And so the assumption is that it's Will. That's what Angela thinks. And we find out later that it's not. But it did make me think, how does all of this work? How does nostalgia made? Uh, is it harvested from someone's brain with the idea that then they will take the, their own memories later to be reminded of them? I think that was the idea. There was a there was a pamphlet or whatever you want to call it, a one sheet uh, that was put up online on the PDPedia entry where they talked about it. I'm forgetting the exact specifics, but I believe they put a microchip in your brain to copy your memories onto these nostalgia pills. And it is supposed to be for people with dementia. But what they ended up happening was <laughs> that people... A, abused it, they would take other people's nostalgia, and then B, they ended up using it to revisit their saddest memories all the time and wallow in sadness instead of help them in their daily life or give an overall picture. And it was interesting, later later, Lady True is uh, giving a speech about the Millennium Clock and she apologizes for what nostalgia has done to the world. Mm -hmm. One little side trip, another thing that I I was curious about, they show us the the true logo a bunch of times in the episode yeah. that almost looks like, I don't know, three knives put together or something like that. I couldn't find any reference online or anything visually that looked like it, but it looks so specific and dangerous. I feel like it has to mean something. Yeah. And on top of that, we get to see the word, uh, the way her name is spelled, which is uh, T-R-I-E-U or U-I-U-E. That is... That to me is like the fact that we read that makes us realize like her name is Lady True, but she's inherently untruthful because it's misspelled. I feel like that was a visual way of being like, you should be suspicious of her. She is untrue. I I think that's fair. But the other thing is that Lady True is an actual female warrior from Vietnam. Uh, And again, this is from some of the ancillary material, but they did say that she's very specifically... Her mother was trying to make her the smartest woman in the world and allowed Uh her to name herself when she was three or four years old, and she decided to take the name Lady True. I don't think that invalidates anything that you just said, but that's the No, because what I'm saying is, is, yeah, and and that's very cool. Uh, I think, though, the showing it visually is what I'm saying, sort of uh, points to the fact that we we call her Lady True, mean true and false. Like, that's... To me, an, uh, the underlying reason to use that that word. Yeah, I, I, it definitely seems fair. I'm, I still feel like she's on the good guy's side, if there is a good guy's side of the show at all. Like she does say, she's trying to save the world, but that also parallels what Adrian Veidt said, where he was yeah. trying to save the world. He was trying to stave off nuclear annihilation, but he did it by killing three million people. If just to totally jump ahead so we could talk about it. But if the plan here is for the seventh cavalry to become a bunch of Dr. Manhattan up racists flying around the entire world, her plan has to be equally terrifying or worse in order to stop them. I think. Well, I don't know if it has to be uh, worse than them, but it has to like, I think it will. If she, she worships Ozymandias, Adrian Veidt. So like, I think she is going to echo his plan in that it will actually stop uh, the seventh cavalry, but there will be a great cost uh, to it that she's ignoring. Mm -hmm. Can I throw a crazy, almost based on nothing theory out at you at this point? I think Uh, I would never say no. Okay, good. The, 
I think her plan and what the Millennium Clock is going to do is turn everybody into superheroes. Like I think, Ooh, nice. I think her plan to stop the Seventh Cavalry is to give everybody Doctor Manhattan up powers and make the world into a superhero world for real, which is calamitous because that it's very random in terms of who gets superpowers. You still could get a lot of villains. You could get uh, insane people with powers, people who don't know how to use their powers, bunch of living bobs, which could cause as much, if not more, devastation than the squid bomb. But at the same time, you have a potential equal opposite force to stop the Seventh Cavalry. Uh, that's a that's a fun theory because it would be a disaster and would end the world. But it it does for the image that popped in my head as you were saying that was. Uh, the end of Fight Club when <laughs> when um, the the Pixie song is playing and all the buildings are falling, just like a montage of people becoming heroes and just like ruining shit all around the world would be amazing. Yeah, that also potentially would tie into and we're really jumping around here and we'll get back to where we were in the episode. But we also get to see that. Uh, Lady True has been recording all of the calls that have made to Dr. Manhattan in her Dr. Manhattan booths, uh, and she seems pretty pissed off about it. Even though she's set up the booths, the idea that all these people are asking, quote-unquote, God for something and God isn't answering them, if she was to to make everybody into gods, she, in essence, would be answering their questions, would be, you know, turning her face away from God by saying, no, you're not special, Dr. Manhattan. You're not unique. Everybody has these powers now. And I think that tracks with the way Adrian Veidt sort of uh, felt about Dr. Manhattan in the original comic, where he was like, this man is a god, but I'm still better than him. I can outsmart him and use him for my purposes. Yeah. But uh, to your point about the uh, the Dr. Manhattan phone booth thing, this has to play into her plan. And let's working off your theory, what if she's using those uh, phone calls as like auditions for people that she mm. um, can turn into superheroes to fight against Seventh Cavalry? Yeah, that's definitely possible. If that happens to Lori Blake, she's going to be so sad. She's going to hate that. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, it's very particular. We see her call there. I think that was very pointed and very purposeful. Yeah, I think part of that is because of Lady True, but also part of that is to play off of Angela Abar, who we now know is married to Dr. Manhattan. Getting to see his ex-girlfriend is still calling him. It plays on that level as too. Um, I'll tell you what, if potentially you're listening to this right after you watch the episode... I would recommend give the episode a second watch. I mean, maybe give the entire series a second watch at this point, but I watched it twice through, and it was so rewarding to watch it the second time, knowing what you know now, because you get to see all of Angela's actions in particular, and Lady True's, in a very different light. Yeah. Uh, I'm very curious to do that after the series is concluded, going back and just crushing through it. Yeah. Um, speaking of crushing through it, let's uh, keep going. Um, we we learn at the end of that scene that the Millennium Clock is going to be finished in 12 hours, which feels like the countdown to the climax of this uh, season. Yes, I appreciate that because that's one Watchmen thing that we've been missing this season so far is Watchmen always had the omnipresent doomsday clock that we were literally counting down to midnight, nuclear annihilation. Uh, it's... <coughs> 
became at a certain point an actual ticking clock versus a metaphorical clock that scientists were setting. And that's what we get here. We've known this Millennium Clock is being built. We've known the Seventh Cavalry has a plan, but now we have a timeline. We know that most likely these last three episodes, two episodes, two episodes, two episodes are going to be set over the course of 12 hours. And that's very exciting. Yeah, very fun. Uh, we see Cal arriving to see Angela and a, a hologram of Beyond uh, just um, sort of trolling him yes, <laughs> out in uh, front of them. Beyond, by the way, is, well, I, I want to say Lady True's daughter. At least we've thought she's her daughter. We find out some other information about that that we'll get to in a moment. Uh, one other detail, this has nothing to do with anything, I don't think, but I thought it was so funny. Uh, Cal passes by Red Scare and Pirate Jetty in their car. They're staking it out to wait until Angela leaves, until she wakes up, because they're not allowed inside. And Red Scare, I think, is eating flaming Cheetos from a bag with a fork. Yeah, it was really weird. It made me think he poured milk on them or something. I like don't know. Cereal? <laughs> I yeah, it no was idea. weird. Whatever it was. It was great detail, though. I love that, just like in terms of not talking about it, just now I want to try it. I want to eat Cheetos with was, a fork. It was casually gross, I feel like. Yeah. Uh, just to show that this dude doesn't, he's a mess. <laughs> he is a mess. I mean, later on in the episode, Pirate Jetty is like, why do you eat all the time? Yeah. <laughs> it's such a funny, weird side scene where, and he's just like, I'm, I forget, I wrote it down. He's like, I'm just hungry a lot or something. He's like, it's such a weird, I, I want to see the buddy cop show of the two of them just They're uh, great. wheeling around solving crimes. Yeah. All of the side characters on the show, this is something we talked about a couple of episodes back, and maybe it'll all come together. I don't I don't know if it 100% will, but something that's very special about Watchmen, the comic book, is every single side character ends up in Times Square just as the squid explosion goes off, except for the ones that are visiting Adrian Veidt. So across the board, almost every single thing is tied up in the book. I don't feel like they're 100% going to do that on this show, but maybe, maybe they are. Uh, so that, it, that's, if that's the case, I wonder what's going on with characters like Red Scare, Pirate Jetty, Panda, if they're just part of the world, part of the tapestry and fun, or if they're going to have some bigger role to play. And let's not forget Lube Man in that. Lube Man, he's going to be sliding on back at some point, I'm sure. Somebody, yeah. by the way, I don't know if they were joking or not, it wasn't 100% clear, sent us an email saying, hey, you keep calling him Lube Man, but you know that's rude. His name is the Silver Slipper. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's nice. Yes. Uh, I, I liked it. Whether it's true or not, I think we could call him the Silver Slipper. I feel like we'll see him one more time in whatever catastrophe, uh, the big catastrophe at the end of this, and he'll be just disintegrated. Oh, I love or that. Or maybe given superpowers. Yeah, maybe he'll be able to slide up onto heaven. Oh, that's nice. That's a sweet little epilogue for our uh, silver slipper. Yeah. Um, so th- we, we move on. Lori is listening to Angela's uh, mumbled memories. She's like putting this all together because that's what she does. Um, Petey's over at Looking Glass's place, and this is something that, like, the cliffhanger from last episode is totally unanswered here. Petey's at Looking Glass's place. Um, there are five dead bodies, 
and we don't know anything except for Looking Glass is not there. Well, we do know one piece of information, which is that one of the Seventh Cavalry members doesn't have a mask on. And to me, that pretty clearly implies that Looking Glass has taken off that guy's mask and is going undercover with the Seventh Cavalry and is going to pop out, I would assume, at the worst possible moment for them in order to stop them. He's going to be a hero, you're saying? Yes. The other thing that I this did, and again, this is very much extrapolating, throwing out a theory, but we've talked a lot about he is the closest to Rorschach on the show. I yeah. do wonder if he does survive whatever is going to happen based on the fact that he's taken the 7th Cavalry mask. I wonder if he is, by the end of the show, going to take on the identity of Rorschach. Like, he will be Rorschach, too. You think he's going to, like, oh, as, like, sort of what he goes off and does? Yes. Interesting. I don't know. I feel like he is purpose. He's beyond Rorschach. I don't think he, you think he's going to go and, like, just solve crimes? I don't know. I, there's so much could happen in the next two episodes, so who has any idea, really? But it just. I think it's much more likely that he'll sacrifice himself like Rorschach did. Absolutely. I 100% agree, and I think. This is too much of like a fanfic idea, but as a shout out to the fads, if there is any room for it in the last episode, a shot of Wade dressed in the classic Rorschach uniform with that 7th Cavalry mask that he's wearing with the Rorschach coat uh, going off and like you're saying, solving a mystery, like a quick shot of that. I think that would make people lose their minds. Again, I, I think for his character arc, you're absolutely right. It makes more sense to just kill him off, have himself sacrifice himself, or be the only one that survives so he can tell the truth about what happened. Um, but anyway, I don't know. Just a, just a fun little thought. Yeah, fun little thought. Uh, so Lori um, goes and uh, she's da- she goes to see Judd's wife to try to track down this. Uh, what happened, she accuses her of uh, being part of Cyclops or Judd of being part of Cyclops. Um, and we learn that the masks were uh, maybe brought up as a plan to confuse everyone, uh, to diffuse like what law, what right and wrong are. I thought that was a cool detail. Um, one little thing here, Laurie call, says, oh, my folks were uh, crime fighters. Yes. And I thought it was really odd to hear my folks. Um, really? Why? Because just because they were never, that's such a, a folksy way of talking about her parents mm-hmm. who their relationship was very, it just, we talked about this a little bit before, how much the comedian has been sort of normalized by her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, she treats both, uh, both of her parents as sort of like on the same level when so much of the Watchmen series was about how bad the comedian was and how he set so many things into motion by being careless and now he's just folks. Yeah. I I think that's okay for Lori, though. I, I, I think it is. I just thought it was – it really stuck out to me as the mm-hmm. first time we've ever heard anything like that. Yeah. I wonder, though, if you could also read that as just a joke, you know, that her being very casual about like, oh, yeah, these these guys, this guy who once sexually assaulted my mom, that's my dad. I could see that as a very dark joke on her part, but, but it's maybe a joke. Not. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't said like a joke, and it was a joke for only her, I guess, because mm-hmm. she was the way she said it was like was just like, oh my folks they used to do this thing. It wasn't like oh, and that's you know my yeah. folks. Interesting. Uh, so to me, I, I just was uh, it really struck me as like 
it made me think of, oh, she's talking about her parents. I was like, oh, wait, her parents um, are the comedian and the original Silk Spectre and recalled all that uh, backstory. Yeah. I The moment that follows that, though, is one of my absolute favorite moments of the episode. Ah, the best. Where uh, Francis, what's the character's name? Francis Fisher is uh, Judd Crawford's wife. I'm blanking yeah. on her name. Uh, we'll just call her Sally because we call all the characters we can't remember. Sally, uh, she ends up turning it around on Laurie saying, oh, you know what? That was the original plan. The original plan was to make Keen Jr. president, but we've got a new plan now. I was just tired of you blathering on, and it completely throws Lori, like completely throws her off her game. And then the wife pulls out this very old-looking remote, clicks it once, Clicks it looks like twice. it runs. It's like like the remote for an air conditioner. Yes, like from like the seventies or something. Yeah, or like a very old uh, garage door clicker or something like that. Uh, yeah, and she clicks it once, clicks it twice, looks at it. Lori's like, "What the fuck are you doing?" And she clicks it again, and it opens a trap door under her, but it slow like sort of creakily opens it. So her yeah, chair it, half falls down, and then it opens all the way when she clicks the next button, and it falls all the way in, and it's. Such a funny visual. Yeah. So the way they took the time to make this a sort of weird physical comedy sequence was just great. And like the confidence in the the show has in the the way the episodes are written is amazing. Yeah. Uh, so then we go to the scene of Beyond <laughs> uh, talking to Angela. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, with the sort of. Um, cards, the almost Rorschach-style test that she's doing. Yeah, I mean, this was straight up to me, the sequence from the comics where the therapist or whatever you want to call him is interrogating Rorschach and gives him the test and asks him to read stuff, except in this case, Angela is being honest versus in the comic book, Rorschach is lying most of the time. How did you do on the test, by the way? Uh, I really failed the last one. Yeah, me too. Really hard. But otherwise, had the same answers as Angela. I felt pretty good about that. Nice. Congrats. You're not a sociopath. I was wrong before. Yes. Oh, well, bad for my app, but yes for me. Uh, so, yeah, this is a great conversation. I mean, I love seeing these two characters that I never would have thought of to put together together. But Beyond is clearly pushing Angela. She says, oh, this test isn't even for part of your treatment. It's just because I'm writing another uh, PhD thesis. Uh, but then asks her questions about being a cop. What is it like to lie to your children about being a cop? Uh, and then confesses that she has nightmares of being an old lady in pain, which tips Angela off to the fact that potentially she's going through the same sort of treatment that Angela is going through. Yeah. Uh, but I like this. I liked how this, this conversation went through so many different threads and levels as it went on, as they seem to be butting heads. They seem to be parrying like a lot of the conversations on the show. One person seems to be in charge and the other person's in charge. And ultimately it ends up being this very emotional conversation between the two. Yeah. And it's, uh not all of this, the things they're talking about are clues to the plot, which I love. Like, it's just stuff they're talking about. Um, some of it is uh, speaking to the larger themes of the show or like pointing us in a direction, obviously. But the other sides of it, it's just like interesting stuff, which I think is, is so great. Yeah. And we've already seen that, particularly with uh, not Theo. Why can't we remember his name? 
Topher? Topher. Oh, my God. Uh, Like with Topher, Angela is nurturing in a way. You know, we've seen her be a hard-ass as Sister Knight, but I think ultimately she realizes that Biot is a kid, even if she's a very weird kid, and wants to talk her through whatever she's going through while she's getting answers, while she's making sure to guard her ultimate secret. Uh, All of these things going on at the same time. It's great. Uh, and then we also get by like one of, I know I'm being very over the top of this episode, but one of the best fades I think I've ever seen in film where it goes from Regina King's eyes to the room where Adrian Veidt is on trial and it perfectly backs up the structure. Oh yes. Real quick before that, um, we, uh, on the question of um, why are you a cop, that flashes Angela back, and we see her um, IDing the man with the backpack, um, which she is given a badge by um, this cop. Right. Yes, I forgot uh, about the scene. Sorry. The guy is um, a mat, like a, a bag is put over his head, and I thought that was such a nice. In that we flash that alongside um, her grandfather Will um, putting on his hooded just, justice mask. And I love the idea of like masks are hiding our identity for a purpose, um, a a heroic purpose in this case. And then it's also hiding this man's face so that they can shoot him. Um, so it, it conceals identity for, uh, for both the person under the mask and also for the safety of the people on the outside who are then uh, killing him. Uh, was really I thought that was cool uh, doubling there. Well, and it also gets back to what we were talking about towards the beginning of the podcast, where depending on how you look at it and depending on which side of the story you're on, it means very different things because, yes, we know this guy is a bad guy who killed her parents and probably does deserve to die. Uh, but on the other hand, paralleling it with exactly what happened to Will, you think about it as like, Will also had a hood put on his head by cops, was dragged to a tree and lynched. This guy had a hood put on his head by cops, was dragged into an alley and shot. And it's almost the exact same thing. So you could almost see that if this guy wasn't shot, he could go through the same journey as Will. And we could see it from his perspective and from the Vietnamese perspective of these invaders are wrong. These racist, these uh, dominators are absolutely in the wrong. And these other people, the people who are resisting are right. And I mean, frankly, that goes back to the Vietnam War itself. Like, that's why in the simplest terms, it was so complicated is because there was no right side in terms of what's going on here. It was just people digging themselves a deeper, deeper hole on each side. Yeah. Yeah. That, like we were always talking about with this show, there's just so much going on in each scene. Um, I also thought it was interesting that they killed the guy right on the street. Like if this is, if Vietnam is the 51st state, I don't know how the laws work over there. Well, it's a new state. Same thing happened in Hawaii and Alaska all the time. Yeah, I think you can still shoot people in Alaska. Yeah, Sarah Palin did that the other day, right? Yeah, but um, she sort of runs it up there. <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't know what's going on in Alaska. Yeah, tell us, Alaska. Call in. <clears throat> so, yeah, then we, uh, as you said before, we jump into um, the trial of Vite. Uh, this whole thing was crazy. Um, it's clones on clones on clones. Um, they know his whole story. I love this um, sort of, we got to see Dr. Manhattan's story at the top of the episode, and we get to see a lot of Adrian Veidt's stuff um, in in his trial, a lot of physical evidence. 
yeah. uh, really setting up these two characters as counterpoints to each other. Mm-hmm. Well, including we get to see as one of the points of evidence, there's a picture of the squid straight out of the comic book uh, yeah. put up there. And I thought this was kind of fascinating. It, it, I don't know how much information we actually got from the scene, you know, because again, we don't know how this is going to pan out over the next two episodes, but that Phillips and Crookshank in the multiple know about the squid, know that he killed 3 million people is an interesting piece of information because we know he's on a different planet. So did he tell them? Did somebody else tell them? How do they know about this and why do they care about it? Yeah. Yeah. Is he like, is he being punished here for his crimes, which of course they would know if he is being punished or is this all just something he's cycling through dealing with his, maybe he's finally feeling guilty about it. Mm-hmm. But the whole thing, like he, for his defense, he just uh, farts, just rips, one, rips a sweet one. Um, yeah. uh, we get the uh, pig jury, they, everyone chants guilty. And then we crossfade on Veidt's face to the statue. Again, pointing to this, like, it's odd that that statue is old Veidt. Right. Because why would anyone know what he looks like? Unless yeah. that's happening in the past and he's going to be revealed to be there. At the Millennium Clock. Well, this is another thing that we could potentially speculate on. Uh, Later on, Lady True reveals, she talks about her parents uh, and tells Angela, she reveals, uh, Angela's like, why are you torturing this little kid? Why are you torturing your daughter? And Lady True tells her straight up, she says, no, that's actually my mother. And we find out something uh, else that we had speculated on pretty heavily, that she was a clone. We thought that maybe she was a clone of Lady True. She's not. It turns out she's actually a clone of Lady True's mother who is being fed the nostalgia-based memories of her mother so that she can ultimately be her mother and because she wants her parents to be there when the Millennium Clock is eventually started. And when Angela says, what about your father? Is he going to be there? And she says, he will be there soon. So... There's a bunch of different possibilities there, but it feels like the likeliest possibility is, to your point, like we speculated on, uh, that statue is Adrian Veidt. It's the thing that fell to Earth, and she is going to get him out in some way. Yeah. I still think that's crazy if he's inside of that statue. Right. Because I don't know how that works. Could it be his genetic material, and could she do the same thing that she did to her mother? I mean, yes, but then how would she get the memories? I don't know. Because if, if the memories – because that's what I, I was thinking. We had talked about this before. If, um, if maybe Lady True was um, the, the daughter of the woman that comedian shoots in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that could be um, what, uh, what's happening here and that she's going to somehow bring the comedian back or s- invoke him in some way. Because I thought it was interesting, like, maybe she's giving Beyond um, these memories so that Beyond can live the life that her mother couldn't because she was killed f- casually uh, by the comedian. Yeah, I feel like, though, bringing back the comedian at this point it would be even crazier just because yeah, I, I agree, but it just matches up so nicely sure. with these story points. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And the only thing that also works against it a little bit in my mind is that we did have that ancillary material where we had a bunch of gossip items about Lady True and that they brought up is Eddie Blake, her father, as a theory in this article seems to point to me that it's like, no, that's just not going to happen. They would have put it out there as a question if it was real at all. The only other thing is uh, Dr. Manhattan might be her father because he is clear he's brought back in the at the end of the episode um maybe he had a relationship when he was over there wandering around vietnam maybe maybe whoever it is it feels like it is going to be a thing um i don't know what what if it's uh topher that's my new theory for topher topher is lady true's dad wow that there's a lot of clues there i'm sure we can make them up yeah <laughs> um so jumping ahead, we get Lori uh, strapped to a chair in the 7th Cavalry base. Uh, Keen is there, and Lori is uh, not happy. She's over all of this. Um, we get the explanation we'd already talked about. The line is extremely different being a white man. Um, I thought was just just really hard to hear and uh, oh, just well, well done. Yeah. Uh, As a white man in America, I couldn't agree more. That's what you were saying, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, it's yeah, definitely it's that's awful. definitely what I meant. it's it's such a like it's been very clear that the Seventh Cavalry is a standard for the alt right, right? But hearing yeah. that line in particular, hearing the it's extremely difficult to be a white man in America right now, draws it as like nope, it's not a standard for the alt right. They are the alt right. They absolutely are those factions in society right now who truly believe things were better when white men were in charge. And by yeah. the way, in case it isn't clear, they are wrong. Just yeah. putting it out there in <laughs> yeah. case there's any questions from the listeners. That's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was uh, really just to encap to like be so concise with making Keen uh, the, the villain you need in that moment. I thought it was, it mm-hmm. was just really well done. Um, yeah. And we find out that they're replicating the Dr. Manhattan experiment. I don't know exactly how this, uh, how it will work, um, what they're talking about doing, but cool. They're all just going to walk through that gate and become Dr. Manhattans. Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, we're not, I don't think we're so, totally supposed to know. Clearly, they're building some sort of cage, right? Uh, it seems like it's some sort of glass cage to put him in, potentially to disperse his molecules. I don't know how that turns them into Dr. Manhattans. In the same way, I'm sure, I'm sure other people have tried to make Dr. Manhattan in the world of Watchmen over the years. So I don't know why they think they're going to be successful when other people haven't, what they have, what their trump card is. Um, but yeah. also, just as a little note, again, Jean Smart, absolutely amazing in the scene, every single delivery that she gives, that she's like, oh, cut the bullshit. I'm so tired of I'm tired. One of the lads she has is, I'm tired of the silliness. And yeah. I feel like that got to the core of where her character is right now, that the reason she took up this job taking down these masks is... She just doesn't want it anymore. She doesn't want the world to be like that. And that's why I almost feel like the ultimate joke would be turning everybody into superheroes and then her having to watch that, that she, she'd almost even appreciate it in a certain way. Yeah, her being like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> Credits. And that's the end of the season. Yeah. Hilarious. Oh, here we go again. Cox's yeah. shotgun jumps off a yeah. cliff. Just starts blowing Manhattans. 
out of yeah. the out of the sky. Yeah, thanks um, for continuing that sentence. By the way, I appreciate it. it hey, that's what I'm here for. Yeah, um, picking up what you're putting down. Uh, <laughs> So we jump, Laurie's pissed. Uh, we jump out of that to um, Lady True speaking, like we said, apologizing for nostalgia. She um, misquotes the Ozymandias poem. I thought was that was a mm-hmm. funny moment. Um, and then we, Angela breaks through the door. She follows the tube. She thinks it's Will. Turns out it's just straight up an elephant. Great for collecting memories. Yes. This, again, I know I keep calling out these things, but this was another big lost David Lindelof style moment to me. Uh, I mean, it makes sense. Sure. If you're going to store a bunch of memories, put it in an elephant. It also, if you listen back to everything that Lady True says, when it's only Angela who is saying you're putting my memories in will back in my grandfather. Lady yeah. True never says it. Like she yeah. never answers that or tells her where they're going. Um, so certainly that makes a lot of sense. But like finding a weird animal at a place it shouldn't be. Classic lost style moment, I think. Yeah, great stuff. And I, I do that too. I whisper my memories into a, an elephant's <laughs> ear in my apartment. And it's a great, it's like a diary, mm-hmm. a living mm-hmm. diary. Yeah, that was uh, the, never mind, I'm not even going to make this joke. Good, <laughs> good. That's good. <laughs> little self-censoring there. That's, uh, that's but, So uh, th- that raises the question, though, which you brought up earlier, where is Will? If he is yes. not in the elephant room, where is Will right now? What's going on with him? Is he getting younger? Is he setting up some other part of this plan? What's happening with him? I feel like we're going to get another big heroic moment from Will. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what it is, but um, I feel like he's, whatever he's doing, he's getting ready to do that. Yeah. Uh, uh, Angela, so Angela slips back. Uh, she, she unhooks from the um, sort of memory dump and uh, falls back into her memories where um, June, uh, come, older June, comes to find Angela, who's in like an orphanage. Um, she, uh, it's a great series of scenes. Um, we hear the backstory of what happened uh, with June and leading up to where she is. Um, she and dodges it- the question of uh, the g- grandfather and masks in general. Yeah, but we do get a couple of flashbacks anyway. One thing that I will note, we actually saw old June at the end of the last episode as Angela was waking up in Lady True's place. The last thing she saw was old June saying, I'm here to take you home right before she woke up in Lady True's hospital bed or whatever you want to call it. So it's... Uh, just an incredible show, but the fact that they layered that in an episode earlier and you don't really find out even exactly who this character is until the next episode, I thought was very neat. Um, Also of note, we get the flashback as she says that to uh, Angela's father being yelled at by Will because he was wearing his costume as Hooded Justice. He was wearing his makeup. June eventually took him, and that's how they broke up and clearly have not talked since. Yeah. And it's great. Like, we see Angela sort of filling in the gaps in her memory as, like, she's reconstructing and, and recontextualizing all of the things she's learned and learning in the moment at the same time we're seeing it, which is great. June falls over dead. So sad. Oh, Very sad. This whole shot, again, a absolutely beautiful, gut-wrenching shot as... Angela is being put in the car, being told she's going to be taken home, is so happy, strapped in by her grandmother, and the camera rotates around. We actually see 
old June fall down behind the car through the car as we're watching Angela and that it spins around and follows Angela out of the car. She discovers the dead body. And I don't know about you, but when I was watching this in my mind, I was thinking, wait, but Angela was in Vietnam. She stayed in Vietnam. Is there a part of her history we didn't know about where she went back to Tulsa? But then you see June fall down and you know exactly what happened. And it's awful. Yeah. Bad. And it it also is like the whole purpose of this, I guess, is to implant the idea of going to Tulsa and Angela's head, Mm -hmm. which I thought was uh, was interesting. I don't like she has to go back because that's the one bit of legacy she gets from June. Yeah. Now, one thing that I'll just speculate about a little bit, and I'm sure we're about to find out more about this, but Angela lost everybody in her life. You know, she lost, she had her parents seemed to be very happy. They got blown up in front of her. She met her grandmother, led an absolutely horrible life in an orphanage, like Annie style upbringing, Oliver style upbringing. Uh, And then she finally meets her grandmother who buys her a burger is like, I'm going to take you home. We're going to finally watch that video you wanted to watch. And she basically dies in front of her as well. I do wonder if part of the reason of ending up with Dr. Manhattan is to be with somebody who cannot die, who is immortal, who will be with her forever. Uh, Yeah. I'm very curious to see how they met and what their relationship um, was like, or is like. It was, I don't want to spoil anything, but it was on my app, sociopath. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, wow. A lot of uh, big I don't want uh, to spoil anything, but this is a very specific spoiler. Wow. I uh, can't wait to see you in next week's episode. Yeah. Very excited. Um, so uh, we get, um, we sort of talked about this scene of uh, Lady True finding Angela in the big blue globe room. Um, we uh, Lady True just drops some exposition about how Doc Manhattan isn't on Mars. He's in Tulsa, pretending to be human. I love the sort of gotcha moment of Lady True saying, Angela, you didn't ask who it is. And she just yeah. sort of, she looks like she's got to say something like, fuck you. But instead she just turns and, yeah. and gets out of there. There's there's two other interesting things about the scene. I mean, one great thing and then one interesting thing. I loved Hong Chow's delivery on Angela, are we going to keep fucking around here? Yeah. When she just lays it out for her and she's like, we both know what's going on. Let's stop playing this game right now. To the point that I think Lady True knows exactly who Dr. Manhattan is at this point. Yeah. Uh, it is. That's why she's calling her out on it. Uh, but it's also interesting that Lady True didn't seemingly know until Will showed up in Tulsa. Because if she is telling the truth, she says... <laughs> Uh, Angela's like, uh, oh, you put that in my grandfather's mind. And she's like, actually, your grandfather put that in my mind. And how did he know? How did he find out other than he's hooded justice, the original superhero, you know? So there's a lot of other information we need to fill in there at this point. Yeah, it makes me think that um, because we talked about how Will seems to have um, some of the foreknowledge that Doc Manhattan has of like Mm -hmm. seeing everything at once. So maybe they were going to get a good old fashioned team up between um, Hooded Justice and Dr. Manhattan uh, of some sort. But yeah, like why? Why did how did he know? How does he know? Yeah. Where is he now? Ooh. 
Uh, and then uh, Angela does run away. She goes back home, smashes through Red Scare's car. That's where we get the line about Red Scare uh, saying, or she's uh, Pirate Jenny's like, why do you eat so much? She's like, I have a fast metabolism, <laughs> which I thought was great. Uh, great. Very fun. They're all great. Uh, and she smashes through the car, gets home as quickly as possible. Uh, we do see that there's some 7th Cavalry outside who are watching them. Uh, but then we get absolutely fantastic sequence uh, where Cal is asleep on the couch. He's reading For Whom the Bell Tolls, continuing to read very specific books that are both about the greater human experience, which makes a lot of a sense now. Uh, but also, I felt like this one was just... Straight up, like the title being a foreshadowing of For Whom the Bell Tolls and Toes for Thee. That's yeah. about they're in a lot of trouble. They have basically like 10 minutes before the shit goes down at this point. It was almost like a, a reference, like a Simpsons joke, where mm-hmm. like you cut to a scene of someone and on the sign is like a joke about what they're doing. It was yeah. so obviously like, hey, the bell's tolling, bro. Get up. <laughs> <laughs> Here comes the trouble. Um, yeah. And it, it does come right there. Uh, I, this scene was so well done. Time to come out of the tunnel. And then she switches from calling him Cal to John. John, you're not yourself. She smashes his head with a hammer and pulls out his uh, his symbol. Yeah. Um, the light glows. Uh, the classic Doc Manhattan blue. And we get the line, hey, baby, we're in fucking trouble. Oh, so good. So, so good. good. Uh a couple of things I want to mention about this. There was one in the background in the kitchen. There was a poster of, I believe, the Eight Planets, uh, which I just thought was a neat little thing to have in the house, particularly in this scene where we're talking about Dr. Manhattan we thought was on Mars. He's not on Mars. There's just a loop of a recording. Uh, and that uh, uh, that uh, we're... Vite, excuse me, I don't know why I totally blanked on that, is on Europa outside of Jupiter. Uh, So lots of stuff going on there in terms of planets. Uh, The other thing, two things I want to mention that I saw online that I was like, "Eh, I don't know about these things, and that I think they turned out to be exactly accurate. Uh, One, a while ago, somebody sent us on Twitter a picture of Dr. Manhattan's knuckles from, I believe, the next episode at this point, I assume. uh, And uh, Yaya's, I never pronounce his name right, but Yaya Dual Matin, who's playing Cal, his knuckles, it was like, these are the same knuckles. And I, they absolutely, this has to be Dr. Manhattan. And at the time, I was like, I don't think you could do knuckle prints of a person, so I feel like this is wrong, but I, I was wrong. You could do a knuckle don't shame print. The ha- print. Don't shame the hand detective. Alex. Yes. The other thing that I believe I've seen bouncing around in theories a little bit, where this was right in front of us the entire time, is, and I don't know if this is exactly right, but uh, ex-Cal Abar. So his name is Uh. Cal Abar. He used to be, I guess, Cal Abar. She literally pulls the Dr. Manhattan thing out of him like the Sword of the Stone. And also, wait for it. The dildo was named Excalibur. So they like straight up told us the entire time. And the other thing that they told us, this is actually exactly in the text of the show, but I just want to point this out, that they put out all the titles for the episode. I mentioned this at the beginning. The title of the next episode, which has been out there for weeks, if not months of this point, is A God Walks Into a Bar, 
which you could definitely read as a god walks into a bar. A bar. Wow. That's yes. amazing. Yeah. So all of that has been out there. It's on the table. And I love that. Like, I love that. Excal, a bar, and then a bar, like walking into it. That's, that's some next level shit right there. Yeah. And all of it is like, they put it out there. They let you discover it. And that's why to get back to the thing that we were talking about at the beginning, I think it works so well is because you could figure it out. They let you figure it out, but it's more about the journey as you're walking through it. And the more, yeah. once you do know it, you can look back and be like, oh, when Angela went up to him, it was like, hey, this guy thinks that Dr. Manhattan could pretend to be another person. And Cal was like, that's ridiculous. And she was like, no shit. That conversation takes on a completely different context. Or yeah. when Lori goes up to Cal at the funeral and shakes his hand, and there's that weird moment where she looks at him, whether she knows it or not, clearly she sees something in him that's her ex-boyfriend, Dr. Manhattan. Like, she knew it, even if she didn't know it. Well, it is weird because she asks about him, and that that whole thing feels... That's another thing to go back and rewatch. Like, she was asking Angela about Cal, and it f- stuck out as being weird. And now... Because like, there's, a, there's a world in which Laurie knows. Yeah, absolutely. And even there's that conversation where every conversation that she had with Angela, she's like, your husband is hot. He's a hot dude. And at the time it reads as like her sort of just grating at Angela a little bit, but whether she knows or not, now it becomes like she was responding to Dr. Manhattan, who she used to sleep with and dated for over a decade, if not more. So great, great stuff. Great stuff. Uh, before we wrap up, anything else you want to say about the episode? Well, a couple of things. So we have two episodes left. I feel like we're going to get some uh, flashback to how uh, Dr. Man, what Dr. Manhattan's life has been like um, from the end of the comic to up to now and meeting Angela and everything there. That'll be great. And then something pushing the story forward and the big confrontation is in the final episode, obviously. Yeah. Uh, Go the, the only thing that I was going to say is structurally, if you look at... Watchmen, the comic book, and this hasn't been following exactly, but it's definitely been hitting a lot of the touch points. You have the second to last issue is the one where Vite lays out the plan. And like we were talking about towards the beginning, it almost feels like that's what happens with Senator Keene Jr. this episode. That's what happens with Lady True this episode, kind of, but we don't find out what the Millennium Clock is for. But you get to see the squid. He says... I did it 35 minutes ago in the second to last issue of yeah. the comic book. So I do wonder, even with the Dr. Manhattan, the origin of it all, if we're going to get that same thing in the second to last episode, or if it's going to have a more traditional TV structure where the last episode is going to be where everything goes down. Well, I think we're going to get the plan reveal. I bet they're going to match that 35 minutes ago moment with something of a big reveal in next episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, I mean, th- this episode almost felt like that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I bet yeah, we're going to get it, another one, though. I, I think so, too. Uh, this this was great. Like, it was great to have them moving the plot forward as an insane pace while still hitting all of these textual ideas, all these thematic ideas, all of these cultural ideas. What? Uh, this is an amazing show. 
It's an amazing show. I'm very curious. Um, so much of the season has been about like legacy, uh, race, how we deal with race in America. And then we have this reveal that Dr. Manhattan has been um, living as a black man in Tulsa. Mm-hmm. Like that's a big thing to, I, I, I hope they point to that and like somehow use that in a way where that it's very intentional that they did that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a provocateur way, which I don't think they're going for at all. Like I don't get the sense that in the writer's room, they're like, how can we really piss people off at all? And so much as how can we say something about things, but at the same time where there has been a section of the audience that has been like, how dare you put a black woman, the lead of Watchmen by treasured comic book, AKA the racist audience. How dare you point out my yeah, racist? They're starting to, they're rooting for Senator Keene all of a sudden. Like, hey, uh, this guy's got some good ideas. <laughs> uh, but I, I guess like there was certainly a bit of an outcry from absolutely gross people about tweaking hooded justice's origin last episode and revealing that he was in fact black. I, I'm curious. I haven't looked online yet. We're taping this a little after the episode is aired on the East coast. Uh, but I'm uh, I'm really curious to see what people think about turning Dr. Manhattan black, because that to me feels like a even bigger, even more reactionary thing. But to your point, I don't think they're going to do that willy dilly. They're going to have something very clear to say about the fact that the most powerful man in the world is a black man. Yeah. Uh, very curious to see how that plays out. Yeah, it's great. If you would like to support this podcast, patreon.com slash comic book club. Also, we do a live show every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. at the People's Improv Theater Loft in New York. Come on by. We'll chat with you about Watchmen. On social, you can check us out at Watchmen Watch 1 on Twitter, Watchmen Watch Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Also, we do a bonus episode of this podcast that is only in the Watchmen Watch feeds. Uh, You can write in your theories, thoughts, comments, anything you want. Specifically, send them to us on Twitter at Watchmen Watch 1. We appreciate that. Uh, Those episodes tape Monday nights uh, or so and then go up on Thursdays. So check them out there. You can subscribe and comment. Please do comment. Comments help us a lot on iTunes, Android, Spotify, Stitcher, or the app of your choice. And remember, we tape this podcast... 35 minutes ago. 